dinner table, your lunch table at work. Somebody, um, Dave, you look nice. Is that a suit and tie? Man, you're classing this joint up. Sorry, it's just squirrel, you know. Um, are you leveraging your table to, to reach out to people, to, to make connections with people, and, and, and really to build into somebody's life? Maybe just with no strings attached, but, but you bring them over and, and you simply invest in their life. Are we doing that as a church? And I think as a church, that's a really important thing to do, is to invest in people's lives. And so we saw Matt's story today, and, um, and, and really somebody just walked across the room and said, hey, why don't you come hang out with us? And boom, life-changing impact. Who are you going to impact in a huge way? Who is God leading you to impact in your life? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it somebody who's sitting by themselves maybe at work? But who is God leading you to impact in a huge way? And finally, who's going to be holding up your picture one day to say, this was the time, this was the moment that I found Jesus? I think it's really important. So we are on week three of digging through the book of Jonah, which means we are on chapter three of digging through the book of Jonah, and it's been a fascinating study so far. So I'm just going to recap it a little bit. Um, Most of you know the story. Most of you have probably seen the VeggieTales movie, which is awesome, by the way. It's a lot of fun to watch that movie, but um, my favorite part of it is when they throw Jonah off the boat, and all of a sudden everything just stops, and they're like, well, that was awkward. So anyways, I, I love this message, and this, uh, this, this book of Jonah is just incredible. Now, here's the deal. My Bible's upside down. Jonah, Jonah is good with proclaiming messages like Nineveh will be destroyed because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Jonah does not like Assyria. Assyria is a bad country. Assyria is godless, godless heathens that are murderers, that are adulterers, that do not obey God's law, and that constantly conquer Israel and make them pay tributes and taxes. So Jonah is okay with proclaiming messages like we find in 2 Kings, that, that Jonah proclaimed that, that Israel's kingdom would be expanded and no longer under Assyria's influence. And that happened for a little while. And Jonah was really good with that. But then when God came to Jonah and said, you know what, their wickedness had came up against me. They'd come up against me. I want you now to go preach to the people of Nineveh. I want you to go to be the one to talk to them. He was not okay with that. Because included in God's call for repentance, included in God's call to go preach judgment, is always the possibility, always the possibility of mercy. Jonah didn't really like that so much. So we find Jonah out on a boat, and the boat is, is shaking, and it's rocking, and it's moving around, and, and they're all scared, and Jonah's asleep on the inside of this boat, and, and, and he essentially says, it's my fault, throw me overboard, and they begin to do that. But the guys, these godless heathens that are on the boat, they're too godly. I mean, they're too nice, they're too moral to throw him overboard. In fact, they say, no, let's try and row back. We don't want to throw this man overboard. God, please do not hold us accountable for this man's life. We do not want to do this. So Jonah's sin began to be revealed while these godless people, godless apparently, were the good guys. Jonah's story, Jonah's life is as he's running, his sin is more and more and more exposed. As he's disobeying God's will, his life just begins to be more and more open and exposed. And then Jonah finally is thrown overboard and God provides a great fish. And Jonah, we went through this yes, or last week, 
we went through this idea of, of Jonah singing this psalm or, or giving praise to God, but still not repenting. Not repenting. His heart was still kind of hard. He didn't say, oh God, please forgive me for disobeying your will. He simply said, okay, I'll go. Kind of arrogant, kind of disobedient. Okay, I'll go. And I wonder how many times have we found ourselves in that same exact spot as Jonah. <clears throat> so this is where we pick up today. So if you have your Bible, flip with me to Jonah chapter 3. It'll be on the screen. It'll be in your Bibles. And if you have um, the, uh, the application, the Bible app, then we've got a live event going. So go ahead and look at that. It'll be up there too. So this is Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let... The, but let people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe, who knows, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw all that they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is where the drama of Jonah starts to really heat up. And actually in chapter 4, it it begins to explode in drama. So next week is just this amazing conversation that happens between Jonah and God about their repentance. But this is where it really starts to heat up. And Jonah, like I said, Jonah never repents. He basically says, okay, God, you caught me. I'm going to go to Nineveh. But then when Jonah goes and preaches to the Ninevites to repent, I mean, his message was essentially what the title, what I titled this message, repent, the end is near. Forty more days and the city will be destroyed. You're like, what kind of message is that? How do you repent from that? You know, but but these people said, maybe this God will have forgiveness on us. Maybe this God will have mercy for us. But Jonah is essentially, goes to this great city, I'm going to break this down a little bit here. Essentially, what happened is he said, you caught me. He preaches the Ninevite to repent. And the word of the Lord came again to Jonah in the exact same fashion that it had come in the first place. And now Jonah gets up and goes in the opposite direction. Now Jonah is still disobedient to God in his heart. His heart is still hardened. Um, I, won't, I guess I won't want to say disobedient. Jonah's still sinful in that he never repented from the first time around, but this time he's at least obedient, and this time he at least goes. And when he says he got up and went, 
That means with great urgency. The word went there, they actually, in Hebrew, to use two verbs and place them together for the word went so that to show that he really got up and went this time. Just as he got up and went the opposite direction before. Sometimes God needs to take us on a journey until we become obedient with him, right? Sometimes God needs to take us on a journey of running away before we can say, oh, I heard your voice and I think I know what the right thing to do is. So many times, so many of us have run away from God. God has called us and led us to do something, and we know it, we can feel it. It's a burning passion within us, but we run away from that only to really realize, wow, I'm running away from this burning desire that I have, and I know that God is leading me to do it. And I think that's sort of what happened with Jonah here, that he does have a desire to please God. He does have a desire to honor God, but he ran away from that at first, and he thought he'd be safe, but he realized that nowhere he could go was safe. So sometimes God takes us on a journey that's difficult so that we'll learn what it means to place our confidence in him. How many times, I bet if we went around this room, we could talk about difficult journeys we've been on. And through that, our confidence, we have firmly placed in God's hands. We've been able to say, all right, God, I've been on these journeys, and as a result of that, the next one that comes up is simply, what do you want for my life? Now, I doubt not any of us have ever been swallowed by a huge fish, but essentially, we've all gone on tough journeys. So then, the Bible says that Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. And then it says, Jonah began, um, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So there's some estimates here that one of the walls of Nineveh, and, and know that this has not been completely unearthed yet. In fact, one of the great tragedies of um, some of the uh, conflicts and the wars that have happened in Iraq, because this is where this is, is Mosul, Iraq, the top northern portion of this, the Kurdish area, where is, it, is where this currently exists. There's two mounds there, and they have not been excavated. And one of them is called the Mound of Jonas, or Jonah. And so there's some great archaeological work to be done on the Book of Jonah still today. That It's just buried under the dirt. And one day, hopefully, somebody will be able to go there. But um, one of the great tragedies is that museums, the Baghdad Museum, was looted and burned. And I remember I had a professor, an Iraqi professor, when I was in college. And he used to teach at Baghdad University. And he was able to escape from Saddam Hussein's, Hussein's uh, regime. And he was able to escape and come to America. And I remember him coming to class, sitting on the table like he normally sat on the table. And I'd never seen a man weep like he wept. And we, we, his name was Dr. Asadi, Muhammad Asadi. We said, Dr. Asadi, what's wrong? What's going on? And he said, I just got word that the Baghdad Museum was looted and the artifacts were gone, just taken away. And the artifacts that were there were from an 1800s dig. Um, man, now I'm getting way too nerdy with you guys. It was an 1800s, 1890s dig that happened, and those were artifacts that were uncovered from Nineveh. But that dig stopped because there was all kinds of other um, political um, issues that happened at the time. But those artifacts were in a museum. Now those are lost. They're on the black antiquities market, the black market for antiquities. Those are lost, hopefully not forever, but they're lost. So there's still a whole bunch of research to be done on Jonah in Nineveh. I mean, this is a real place, real people. And one of the things they've uncovered in these two mounds is that the wall of Nineveh was, one of the main walls was seven miles long. Seven miles long. So it took 
a three days journey for Jonah to walk through. Because you've got to imagine, it's not, like, uh, it's not like you just say one thing to somebody and all of a sudden the word spreads. He had to walk through these towns day and night being obedient to God's call. Day and night, screaming at the top of his lungs, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned or repent for the end is near. Just walking around, I mean, this man, a lot of people say he's probably a bleached guy because of the belly of the fish. He probably had white hair, probably had white skin, um, could have still stunk from that encounter. Um, essentially, this eccentric man walking around one of the most dangerous places on earth saying, you're all going to be destroyed. And they wondered, what is going on? The Assyrian culture, the Nineveh, the culture in Nineveh knew the Jewish cult system is what they called it, the Jewish religion. They understood that there was a Jewish set of gods, or there was a Jewish god, not set of gods, and they had rules to live by. In fact, Nineveh and Assyria had overtaken Israel, parts of Israel in the past, and so they understood a little bit of the culture. And one of the things that was widely known at the time is that anybody that comes from Yahweh and proclaims a message includes the possibility, the possibility of God's mercy if they repent. So listen to this, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10. Like I said, this would have been understood by a variety of world cultures at the time. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do for it. So basically, this is the prophet Jeremiah hearing the word of God right around the same timetable saying, if I send a prophet to a nation that's doing evil and they repent, then I'll show them mercy. Many scholars believe, many people believe that the Ninevites would have absolutely known this. In fact, they, have ha- they had some Jewish religious scrolls that they found, which are lost in antiquity. And so they would have understood this. They would have gotten this. So now this breaks open this even larger picture of Jonah. At first, we see Jonah as this guy, and we see the wickedness of the, the Syrians and the Ninevites. And we talked about this, the evil that they would do to people. The murder that they would do to people. I mean, what they would do to people is almost unfathomable. Fathomable. Is that a, okay. Um, sometimes I say words, I'm like, did I even get that right? Anyways, the wickedness they would do is terrible. But Jonah would have known this. Surely, as a prophet of God, would have known the possibility, the possibility that Yahweh, that the God of the universe would actually have mercy on these people. And so at first, what looks like to the outside world, he doesn't want to go there because, like, for noble reasons, that he would probably die, oh, it's too dangerous, or, you know, I don't want to go there, these people are wicked, these people have beaten us up in the past. What looks like noble reasons on the onset turn into this selfish, I don't want those people to hear this word. They're not worthy of repentance. They're not worthy to live by the standards that God has given them. I don't want those people to get it. It turns into that. It turns into good old, old-fashioned 
bigotry. That's what it turned into. He did not want these people to hear it. In fact, this is what chapter 4 is all about. Next week, we're going to talk even more about this, so I'm not going to go into it much this week because chapter 4 is all about this. So, but do you see what happens in the book of Jonah? As soon as Jonah goes around proclaiming, the, the regular people begin repenting. Just the regular people begin repenting. And then it says, as news of this reached the king, then something even bigger happened because the king repented. And, and, and look with this. I want you guys to get this. One of the things that's happened here, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, this is verse 6, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. His throne represents his power. His robes show that he is clothed in power and that he has his own power and majesty. And so when he gets up from his throne, he's saying, I'm relinquishing my ability to have power here. And he's taking off his clothes saying, I am not going to have the power that I had. And when he puts on the sackcloth, it's the, literally the lowest, coarsest, it's goat hair that they made him out of. And he put that on saying, I am nothing. And then he took a new throne, he took it in the dust to say, I am, I am the lowest of the low. God, would you please forgive me? I mean, Jesus... Did not ever, never really had to repent. He never had sin. But Jesus kind of did the same thing. I mean, he, he, when he washed the disciples' feet, he took off his clothes. He, he kind of showing that I lay my life down. And he washed his disciples' feet, meaning I will cleanse you of your sins. And then he put his clothes back on to say, I will rise again from the dead. This is very symbolic. But it kind of brings up to us, how should we treat our own sin in the face of a holy God? How should we treat our own junk, our own messed up stuff? And more largely in our culture today, no one really even wants to admit that they even have sin. No one even wants to admit what they do. They might say, oh, I messed up or I made a mistake. But no one really even wants to admit that they did something wrong. Because everything is relative. And so we don't even really want to admit this stuff. But I love this picture of this king standing up and saying, I was wrong. He sets an example for his entire, entire giant, large, massive city. And he even says, I want the animals to be wearing sackcloth. I don't want anybody to drink water. I don't want anybody to eat food until God relents from this, until God changes his mind, because we are sorry. And the most interesting thing about all this is Nineveh becomes one of the instruments of God to take away the northern kingdom of Israel later on. And as we read last week, when Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah, he said, I tell you, the Ninevites will stand up in judgment against you because they showed true repentance. God wants a repentant heart. And what does it mean to repent? It simply means to change your mind. We do this all the time. We do this every day. We used to think when we hear this word repentance, it's it's a loaded word, isn't it? It's got a lot of baggage to this word. If you were to walk up to somebody and be like, repent right now, I mean, they would think that you're like, hey, get out of my life a little bit, right? I mean, what do you think I've done that you're doing that to me? You know, what do you imagine my sin is? But repent simply means to change your mind. As you're going along your path, you change your mind about things. Oh, Jesus is God. And you move a little closer and you move a little closer. And each time you repent of things, oh man, that junk in my life, I, I, I used to do this. I, that doesn't honor God. I got to get that out of my life. 
And your, and your course begins to change gradually and gradually and gradually. Your course begins to change. Repentance is one of God's tools to restore order to the nations. One of the things that we believe in, I think, every TV show, every movie has some element of this. Every book that we read has some element of this. Is to restore order to the world the number one thing that we need to do is violence, right? We need more war. We need to shoot people. We need to, um, I mean, like look at every single James Bond. It, it is just absolutely what I'm talking about, even though I'm a big fan of the franchise, the James Bond franchise. If you kill the bad guy, order will be restored. So on some level, we have this deeply built into our system of humanity that, that violence restores order, but really we see Jonah and we see Nineveh. What restores order there? Repentance. Think about your marriage. Does violence restore order in your marriage? I hope not. You'd be in jail, man. And I'll put you in there. You know, I'll call the cops on you. Does violence restore order in your relationship with your kids? No, you should go to jail for that. Does violence restore order like at your workplace? You know, your boss says, I want to do this. So you get a little upset at him, so you just sock him in the face. Does it, does it restore order? No. You get fired and arrested. Does repentance restore order in your marriage? Wow, I didn't realize I did that, sweetie. I'm so sorry. Well, how to help me not do that again? Or does, does repentance restore relationships and does it restore order in your, in your work life? oh man, I dropped the ball on this project. I didn't even mean to. I, I'm so sorry. Help me not to do that again. Yes. Repentance is God's tool to restore order. And I, I know this sounds like a totally simple thing, and it is. But somehow we've lost that. And we've said, oh, no, 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 it's violence that restores order. And everything that we watch tells us that. But we have a world in which people are taught not to say, I'm sorry. We've got to say, I'm sorry for things we mess stuff up, right? We've got to do that. And when you begin to think about these different problems, you begin to think about life, um, the reality is repentance restores order to society. Here's one of the things I want to do. And if you were at Man Church a couple weeks ago, I did this there. Um, and I just thought, you know, we're talking about repentance, so I want to talk about this a little bit more. So as multimedia as we were today, I'm busting out a whiteboard because... I just like to draw stuff. I'm really good at art. That's not true. I like the murmurs. But all right, on your bulletin, there's a little circle with a line. And you're probably thinking, all right, what is this message note circle and line? There's, there's kind of a couple different ways to look at life. And you know what? I'll try and do this so that they can see over there too. And John's tall enough. Isn't that great? We hired a tall enough worship leader to, where he could just stand over the whiteboard. In our life, we kind of of this. It's chronos in, in Greek. It's a chronological, chronos, chronological. As we're going through life, you know, this is it. It's linear point A to point B. This is our life. In our life, we have aha moments, right? We have moments that are like, oh, I got that. So what I want to do is I want to just teach our church something to help people repent. And I know it sounds really weird when, like, maybe you have somebody sitting at your table and they have one of these aha moments. You're like, I'm going to help you repent right now. Don't use that word. That word is so loaded and so, so, so much baggage. I simply want to teach us something that's super easy 
It's a circle, so we can all remember it. You know, you look at your watch, you go, oh, that's a circle. You know, it's, you look at your, ring, your wedding ring, oh, that's a circle. So going along life, we have these aha moments, and they're related to Kronos, but it's Kairos. These are Kairos moments, and the Kairos in the Greek is like the aha, oh, I get it. And as a result of getting it, you change your mind. And so we begin to lead people on this journey. This is observe. Oh, let's talk about it. Oh, man, what happened to you? I mean, as you're talking with people, they go, oh, man, something happened to me today. And, and sit with them in that moment. And the only way we could do this really as a church is if you have taken the time at the table to invest and build into people's lives. And when I've seen this done, it most, most usefully it's been with youth kids. You've just taken the time to, to sit in life with them. And they say, oh, I realize this happened today. And you sit down and you talk with them. So you observe, you reflect this thing is wobbling. And then you discuss. This is the repent side of the circle. This is you get them helping to think in their mind about what's going on. What is God doing? What is God saying? Uh, do, do you think that you would, uh, you know, arrive in, from a different, um, or do you think you would go a different uh, area or a different direction next time? What do you think is a better thing you could have done in that situation? It's simply asking good questions. And as we do this with people, we begin to ask the question, what is God saying? We've got to remember, people hear all the time what, uh, what the world is saying. People hear all the time what the pundits are saying, what the good advice is. But the question that a church needs to ask that the church needs to ask is, what is God saying to you? What do you think God's trying to get across to you in this time? And as they get there, they go, oh, man, I think God's trying to say this. You go, great. As soon as you hear that, you just move on to, to the next thing, and you say, let's make a plan. Let's plan on, on what to do differently next time. Let's figure this out. And then you, you say, you know what? Let's account. In other words, what I'm going to do is... Um, I'm going to call you this week and see how that went. You know, you, you made a plan to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a call. I'm going to shoot you a text and just say, hey, how'd that go this week? And then, and then you act. And this way you believe. So this is the repent and believe cycle. It's, it goes around and it's, it's kind of circular. And you're probably thinking, what is this weird guy doing up here drawing a chart? But it really helps us to think about when we have really simple tools and you've got people sitting at your table. This is kind of what Jonah did. He went over and said, change your mind, repent. And then they believed and they acted differently. When you believe on it and then you act, it becomes solid. It's a belief. I mean, how many times, I think I've said this before, how many times have you taken a test and gotten all the answers right but not believed a single thing that you, that you marked down? You know, I remember I did in philosophy class. I got all the answers right on, on a certain test, but I thought that the certain philosopher we were talking about was full of it. All right. So anyways, it becomes an action. And in this, in this sense, as you're going through, you begin to change trajectory in their life. So as you take them through this, as you say, okay, let's talk about what's going on. What is God saying? What will you do about it?
What will you do about it? What is God saying? What will you do about it? When you begin to take people through these, then you begin to help them change the trajectory of their life. And this is what we need. This we, People need in our lives. We need people that are going to help us walk through life. And I think one of the things that we could do as Christians is, is just play this vital role of helping people walk through the junk in their life. I mean, this isn't exactly... Jonah didn't sit down with every single Ninevite and say, all right, lay it on me, tell me your sin. You know, he didn't do that. But this is something, this is really a New Testament model that we could follow, that we could help... And God was pleased this moment. So essentially, oh, we have to tighten it? It makes sense. We're going to wrap this up soon anyways. Um, but this is a way that we can help people walk with them in changing the trajectory of their entire life. God does the changing. God does the work in people. What you're simply doing is pointing it out. So as you're sitting at the table with these people, maybe it's like, hey, you know what? We've got coming up, we've got this thing called the community Bible experience. It's just like a book club. We're reading all the New Testament together. You want to come. Maybe, maybe you invite them to that. I don't know. Maybe it's something simple, but maybe it's they say, oh, this happened at work today. And you just help them. You just walk them through it. You just ask them some questions. You eventually say, hey, what, what's, what do you think God's saying to you? And then they respond and you say, okay, what are you going to do about it? And as people get on that plan that God has for them, as people start to really lead and live into that, then the trajectory of their life begins to change. They were going a certain direction, and now you've helped them to see that walking in a different direction is really the way that God wants them to be. So today, I want to just simply invite us to lead ourselves first into repentance. Maybe it's for sin, maybe it's for some junk in your life, but maybe it's simply that you just have an aha moment and you're like, wow, I need to change my mind about the way I'm interacting with God. Maybe I need to read the Bible more. Maybe I need to do something. I I don't know. But maybe you just had this aha moment yourself. I just want to challenge you to lead yourself through that circle. Lead yourself through repentance. And then take the next step and say, all right, God, what are we going to do about it? I love the beautiful picture that the Ninevites did what they did. They sat in the dust to say, we are nothing but dust. God, you are greater. We are lesser. I love that picture. What are you going to do? Who will you impact? Who will you help change the trajectory of their life? Maybe tonight, today you simply need to change your mind. So right now I want to give you, uh, John and the band is going to come and we just want to give you some time and some space to, to do that. Maybe you simply need to say, God, take my life. Maybe you simply need to say, God, I need to change the way I'm living. God, the trajectory that I'm headed on is not very good, and you need to help me change. Simply want to invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would help us to change. Father, that you would help us to move a completely different direction. God, would you place people in our life that we could just simply help walk through this with? Would you, would you give us the influence in life with others to help them see you and how great you are? God, lead us to a new place in life. And God, change our minds, change our hearts for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.